Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be looking at the concept of embodiment as it's expressed in depth psychology and yoga philosophy. My guest, Dr. Leanne Whitney, teaches yoga philosophy to yoga teachers in Southern California. She is also the author of Consciousness in Jung and Patanjali. Welcome, Leanne. Thank you, Jeff. Nice to be with you. It's a pleasure to be with you as as well. Embodiment implies being aware of your body, being in your body, as opposed, I suppose, like I often am in outer space or something. Right. Yes. The concept in and of itself implies that there's some sort of mind-body split and that one would be utilizing certain practices in order to uh, marry the mind into the body and be able to uh, exist in the body in a way that is, I want to say, more full, more complete, more whole. Mm -hmm. You know, as a parapsychologist, I've often said and thought and and believed that the body is our psychic antenna, that uh, every cell in the body is capable of receiving information. I love that. I don't know if I've ever heard you say that before, but it's so beautiful. And if just talking about yoga, Mm -hmm. um, uh, pure consciousness is the reality of being. Uh, Patanjali swaps out in his text. He uses perception. So this idea that consciousness and perception are synonymous. Uh, So one way we could talk about embodiment uh, through the lens of parapsychology is what's the signal? What's the noise? Mm And, and how do we tune into that signal in the body uh, so we can uh, calm the chaos, if you will, um, release the anxiety, release the distress, the dis-ease, yeah. and that would all have to do with noise. Exactly. Yeah. And, and of course, yoga philosophy expresses it beautifully that the uh, when the body is calm and poised, it's like the surface of a still lake that reflects reality accurately. Right. That's exactly right. And in uh, that system of thought, in other words, one can't trip oneself up and appropriate consciousness or believe one, let's just say, is enlightened, if you will, uh, because the body will always be indicating the areas where the mind is split off. In other words, see what I'm saying there? So if you co-opt this idea of enlightenment, but the body isn't fully in line, uh, fully healed, uh, the dis-ease hasn't been uh, released out of the nervous system, um, that would be contradictory, in my opinion, mm-hmm. to really what Patanjali is pointing to. He doesn't even use the term enlightenment. He uses kaivalya, which is a term which means to rest upon oneself, which even in that term, to me, shows this idea of embodiment, of uh, the mind, the breath, the body working in unice- mm-hmm. u- unison um, and very harmoniously. Mm-hmm. Now, 
there are forms of psychotherapy, of course, other than depth psychology that really do focus specifically on, on the body. One of them I'm thinking of is called focusing by, uh, developed by a psychologist in Illinois, Eugene Gendlin, and in which people actually dialogue with their body. Yes, I'm familiar with that though. I have not studied it, but oh yeah, for sure. There's uh, other psychologies out there that uh, work with the body. Um, I, I want to say more as a main focus mm-hmm. than Jungian depth psychology does. The the main focus in Jungian oriented depth psychology is to bring the unconscious material up into consciousness. A lot of that is done through, I want to say, imaginal ways of knowing. So through dream interpretation, um, painting, um, yes, obviously speaking one story, narration, and uh, as the discipline has progressed, people like Marion Woodman, uh, talk about dancing and really moving the body in order for these embody for embodiment to take place and as embodiment practices uh but certainly when the discipline began with young the body um was a factor as far as what is the unconscious material but the the practices that you're pointing to with focusing is is much more um Heavily emphasized. The body yeah, is yeah. much more heavily emphasized. I mean, there's a whole area of somatic psychology, right. which includes yoga, in, right. incidentally. Yeah. Well, yoga is for sure somatic because, again, the nervous system is really the indicator to the alignment, not necessarily the mind. Uh, the mind can... Um, follow these imprints, if you will, follow these habit patterns, follow these grooves. And, but the nervous system in the body will be tracking whether that mind is moving very far from its source, if you will, or very far from its ground. Mm-hmm. So the nervous system is holding a whole host of information, in other words. And uh, to my knowledge, uh, Freud and Jung and, and the founders of depth psychology, uh, as well as people like Joseph Campbell, the great mythologist, all felt that the these dream images, these archetypal patterns, uh, even the world mythologies were ultimately all based in the body. Yes. Um, so Jung talks about archetypal images and the archetype as such. Mm-hmm. Uh, for him, the archetype as such was irrepresentable, um, but it's something that goes across all cultures. It's, it's within the species as a whole, mm-hmm. in other words. So the archetype, um, archetypo, so it's like primordial imprint. Um, that's, so it's imprinted in the, in the species every species, really, um, at the beginning of time. And uh, he tells of the leaf-cutting ant. I don't know if you've ever read that. So this idea that without the, the leaf, um, the cutting, the transport, the fungi in the soil, without that total image, that total pattern of the archetype can't come forward. So it's, it's actually a very embodied view, if you will, that that archetype, that imprint is, um, in the depths of the psyche and therefore, you know, the, and that's what Jung was after was synchronicity, right? That the matter in the mind, they're, they're working in unison 
uh, in this archetypal pattern. Mm-hmm. Now, I know uh, in our previous interview on the feminine, uh, you used a term, we didn't define it then, but it's relevant to our discussion now, Echo-psychology. Yes. So, the uh, psychology of ecology, if you will, of, uh-huh. of, of the earth. Yes. Yes. Sure. That's a whole discipline in and of itself now as well. Mm-hmm. I years ago interviewed uh, Theodore Rozak, one of the founders of the idea of eco-psychology, and he felt that uh, we can't really take adequate care of the planet and the ecology, if we don't understand that uh, in our very bones, that's uh, we're part of it. Absolutely, and that's part also of this. Uh, the embodiment process is the turn towards listening, listening to the needs, listening to the feelings, understanding that that um, those emotions and those instincts run parallel, if you will, run hand in hand, and. Uh, and in getting in touch with them and listening to them is this crucial component to uh, the marriage, which is embodiment. Yeah. Now, as I recall, back in the 19th century here in the United States, there, there was a very popular writer and I think even a, a public speaker. His name was Graham, uh, the person for whom the Graham Cracker was named. And, um, you know, he was sort of a, a health advocate. But part of his whole philosophy, which ran deep into our culture, is that a healthy person doesn't feel their body at all. The only time you'll ever need to feel your body is when you're sick. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. That's interesting. That's very different than what you're talking about, isn't it? <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, maybe he's saying that everything's in unison, so nothing's getting split off. I'm not quite sure. But uh, for sure, the vitality and the vibrance of the body is, is something that becomes very alive in the process of embodiment. Yeah. I, I recall... When I first started in psychology, right after I got my undergraduate degree, I had a job briefly at a mental health center, and uh, I had a book called Sensory Awareness by uh, Bernie Gunther, and I experimented. Uh, they gave me the most difficult patients in this clinic, people who were practically catatonic. They hadn't spoken in years and we did this simple little exercise of tapping. I had them tapping their head just like like this. And one woman started talking. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So I, I think um, part, one of, I would say it's very symptomatic of our culture in, uh, in the West where, where we have enormous ecological problems that, that we lose touch with our body. And in doing it, we're, we're really losing touch with ourselves. Oh, I think you could say the ecological problems are a symptom of being out of touch with our bodies. I mean, we don't prepare our own food. Uh, we are so out of touch with the soil and the earth. So many people living inside cities now, um, they don't even see stars in the sky, let alone, you know, their feet are touching cement more often th- than grass, if they even get to touch grass at all. Um, so, f- for sure, society as it's now... Um, becoming more and more prominent in cities, people are losing touch with their bodies and perhaps why yoga is being imported so, you know, uh, so voraciously into the West. Mm -hmm. But yes, I I would say that the 
eco-psychological problems are indicative of the fact that we're split from our body to begin with. That we don't even feed it really. Um, most of us, I would say, or a lot of us don't feed it uh, according to the needs of the body. You know, food addiction or any kind of addiction or, you know, um, in a depression when people run towards muffins or, 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 or chips or things like that. You know what I mean? That they're running to fill uh, material to, to gain uh, a comfort food back, a comfort back that they've lost because of that split. Now you're really hitting me where it hurts. You saw me <laughs> eating muffins this morning. <laughs> I love muffins. I, I was meaning it in the depressive situation, right? Yeah. Donuts, muffins, cookies, mm -hmm. chips. I um, love a lot of that stuff. It's one of my weaknesses, perhaps, but I don't think it means I'm, I, I tried not to be out of touch with my body. Yeah, I, I'm, not, I'm not making a blanket statement, but yeah. I am saying for people who are suffering from a depression, mm -hmm. that's, that, you can see that symptom. You mm -hmm. can see that food is utilized yeah. in order to uh, medicate the depressive symptoms, if you will. Well, I'm going to pay attention because maybe, maybe, yeah, I need to listen more carefully. Thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, but, so what you're saying uh, ultimately is consciousness of what we eat. Yes, absolutely. Because that seeking sensation is also coming from an instinctual basis. Mm -hmm. So when the mind is split from the body, we can seek for comfort in ways that are trying to um, alleviate the pain of that split, mm -hmm. whereas when uh, there is unity, we would be feeding our body from that holistic point of view. Uh -huh. You see where I'm going with that? Well, it sounds to me like what you're saying is when we're not in touch with our body, the body is going to try and reassert itself uh, through unconscious behaviors. Yes, 100%. And that is the pro one of the processes of embodiment is listening and rooting out those unconscious behaviors. Mm -hmm. And of course, there's a lot of unconscious behaviors we have associated with food and eating. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of it for this reason that I'm pointing to that, um, that disease, mm -hmm. that, that discord when we feel when the mind is split from the body, yeah. that we can utilize food, ch chocolate, mm -hmm. or, uh, some, usually not the healthiest foods as, yeah. as a, a medicine to try to heal the pain. But in effect, what it's doing is keeping us in the habit pattern of the split. You see what I mean? I, I get it. Uh, it reminds me of several interviews I've done with uh, one with Colin Wilson and another one about Colin Wilson with Gary Lockman about the notion of the robot that we, we develop robotic behaviors, uh, automatic, habitual, uh, unconscious behaviors. Uh, and in, in fact, Colin Wilson at one time discovered to his own horror that having sex with his wife had become kind of robotic. Mm -hmm. it, I think it's, it, he discovered it right in the middle of, of a sexual intercourse and it horrified him. Mm -hmm. Well, certainly sex addiction, addiction can arise, mm -hmm. uh, but that idea of those 
unconscious patterns and those habit patterns is very prominent in the work of both Jung and Patanjali. Patanjali speaks about it in terms of samskaras and vasanas, so um, these mental imprints that turn into these habitual forms of the mind, mm-hmm. and Jung speaks about it in terms of complexes, which are basically core patterns uh, that have to do with an image, thoughts, emotions, around a central image, uh, and there's there's a, a wounding there, yeah. and it, it basically gains energy around that wound, and it will discharge itself. Um, all that psychic energy will discharge itself um, whenever it needs to, and not necessarily when the conscious mind, you know, is ready yeah. for it to pop through. You know, I think that the the depth psychologist, in this case Freudian, uh, who speaks most directly to that, uh, would have been Wilhelm Reich. Yes, could be. It could mm-hmm. be. Yep. Who talked about uh, body armoring that when we we develop wounds that we're unconscious of, and then our body tightens and forms like a hard shell. So he often advocated a, a form of somatic therapy that was practically like massage, working to uh, loosen up the body. Yes, brilliant. And and that's uh, the beauty, actually, of depth psychology, uh, is, is that there were so many of these founding members who found these different angles of expressing mm-hmm. what that unconscious behavior was doing. And then it's also the tragedy of the discipline, because uh, uh, a lot of those players split off and didn't... Uh, y- come together, in other words, to formulate a cohesive discipline where everybody was, yeah. uh, you know, putting in their point of view. No, I think Reich is regarded as sort of the the godfather of a whole range of body therapies, but they're not very much in dialogue with the Jungians or the Freudians or the cognitive therapists anymore. It's as if psychology itself has has split into a dozen or more different disciplines that uh, don't particularly interact with each other. No, and I do think that's the unfortunate part. It's like there's competition um, around who can best map the terrain. And actually, uh, the historian Sonu Shamdashani, who has looked at the history of depth psychology, that's exactly how how he articulates it. Mm-hmm. That's the, This is the tragedy of, of the field, that there was competition there. Mm-hmm. And... Um, what we need is the collaboration and the cooperation and the dialogue, for mm-hmm. sure. Uh, another area of psychology that addresses bodily issues is uh, Otto Rank and his work on the birth trauma. That's right, and, and Stan Groff, right, mm-hmm. has has developed that even more completely with his with his work um, in holotrophic breathwork. The, the, the idea of those images that come forward that show mm-hmm. you and how important that birth process is mm-hmm. for um, the, the psyche. Um, I think through yoga psychology you could also say karma starts to come into play there, that that choice of birth and whether one is birthed by cesarean or natural childbirth, um, different uh, woundings or psychic propensities can come in at that time. Um, But again, affect and um, yeah, affect and these complexes and these samskaras, these imprints, were was crucial for both Young and Patanjali as far as this embodiment process goes. That affect uh, really is a key, is a marker. The, in Patanjali's case, the sorrow, the grief. Um, so when you go to birth trauma, that's what I think that um, 
you know, when the babe gets separated from it, its mother in those distress calls, and uh, if the mother isn't there to attune and to be with that child during those moments of distress, already the psyche is beginning to pattern um, in, in a way that it will have to heal itself later on from that level of distress or dis-ease. Now, you used a Sanskrit word, uh, samskara. Let, yes. Let's talk about that. Yes. So, samskara is an imprint. So, it's a psychic imprint. So, really, any any thought is going to create the imprint. And the more energy, heat, uh, amount of time one thinks that thought, it becomes into the vasana, the habit patterns. It becomes a real habit pattern of the mind. And really, before we know it, we can be living inside those habit patterns. And that's where the process of embodiment comes in. Mm-hmm. Because we we create... a an outlook, if you will, a concept of reality. Uh, if you, I think we could say a, re- a representation of reality instead of actually being in reality. Mm-hmm. I, I have heard some people use the term spiritual bypass, <laughs> and it refers to, I think, actually in particular meditators, people who can enter into a very peaceful, enlightened, meditative state, but they haven't dealt with uh, psychological issues. They bypass them so that uh, while they might feel enlightened or enter into a, a temporary kind of enlightenment, uh, they don't break through because they're, they still have these unconscious patterns that haven't been addressed. Yes, absolutely. And I think that's where um, the danger comes in with the term enlightenment. Mm-hmm. Um how do you spot somebody who's enlightened? How do you know if somebody has brought this work deeply down into their body? Uh, to me, that's where we, we want to head. We don't want to head in, into a, a, a teach or, or if Westerners who are taking the Eastern teachings to heart. We don't want to encourage people into that kind of enlightenment that you're pointing towards, mm-hmm. a spiritual bypass. And again, in Patanjali's text, I don't think that's possible because in sutra, uh, well, he has two sutras back to back, 130 and 131. In 130, he's basically indicating, uh, when people, uh, have gotten off the path, so to speak, through carelessness or laziness or they, they, they failed to, to, to make a certain stage. And right on the heels of that, in 131, he says there's going to be markers. There'll be anxiety. Your breathing will be irregular. I don't think the spiritual bypass is possible in his psychology when read through a non-dual lens. Of course, most people who practice yoga and meditation don't go through all the sutras of Patanjali like you are. Right. They they might not. I mean, it will depend on the teacher. Mm-hmm. It will depend on the teacher. And a lot of people, I don't think, understand the sutras because the sutras have to be understood, really understood. <laughs> from the place of embodiment, from the place of a direct experience. And of course, that direct experience is also what Young was pointing his followers towards. Now, let, for the benefit of our viewers, let's define what a sutra is in this context. Okay, so the yoga sutras, it's the threads of yoga. Mm-hmm. It's almost like the uh, word suture as in stitch. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. 
Yep, and they're all they are all separate threads. Uh, he has 195, uh, but they all work very beautifully in harmony with each other because wholeness and pure consciousness is the ground. So he's always able to stay within the vision. So where Jung was kept moving his vision forward, if you will, as an evolution of consciousness. Um, it was very conceptually and linguistically based. For Patanjali, knowledge is structured in consciousness, so these threads are forever uh, reflecting back on each other because the wholeness is the ground of them. Mm-hmm. So, and that's why, again, Spiritual bypass ultimately is not possible if you're really committed to what he's pointing towards, mm-hmm. because that getting the nervous system, uh, what I would say, into its midline or into that um, very balanced state is a key component of the process. Now, one of the points that you made uh, when we were talking privately is that you can't understand Patanjali if you're not practicing yoga. Right. Uh, Now, of course, it's uh, a very popular piece of scholarship Mm -hmm. all around the world. I mean, for a text that's less than 200 lines, it's probably one of the the most enduring pieces of scholarship. Uh, But it's often picked up by scholars. So people who are reading it um, and trying to understand it through mental process. And Patanjali is very clear, it will never be understood that way. It has to be understood from the practical application. And we, I hope we'll be doing another interview later on the eight limbs of, of yoga because the practical application is not just doing the postures. Right. Oh, that's right. Nope. The postures, um, and I think we mentioned this in another interview, mm-hmm. are, are a metaphor for the philosophy and the psychology. Mm-hmm. So if you try to plunk the asana out of it, I, and again, this is the beauty of the logical consistency. You actually really can. Every time you try to steal something out of it, it's going to catch you on the backside. Mm-hmm. Now, what do you mean by that? Because there's no way to steal from it. It's whole in and of itself. Mm-hmm. So if you try to take the asana out of its philosophical and psychological mm-hmm. basis, um, there there will be problems later on down the line. Mm-hmm. Uh, we could say that's the um, perhaps indicative of the materialism in Western culture, that we would take the body out first. That, 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 that's the aspect of the yoga practice mm-hmm. that has become really fulfilling yeah. to us in the, in, in the West. First of all, because we're, we're looking to get in touch with our body, but also in some ways we're, we're obsessed with the body in a way that uh, brings disharmony towards the wholeness and towards the totality. That materialism, um, if you will, Greed. There, there's a level of greed involved in that. And uh, in order for the wholeness of yoga to be known, um, any kind of separation, any mm-hmm. kind of greed, any kind of possessiveness has to be reconciled. Yeah, I'm under the impression uh, that some people practice yoga because they want to have a beautiful looking body, like Hollywood actresses. Right. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of that. Absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. And yoga will do that. Mm-hmm. It will absolutely bring a lot of benefits to the body. But now I come from Los Angeles, which has a, a, a huge yoga community. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of longtime practitioners who are now suffering 
with bodily symptoms. A lot of people who have chronic back conditions because they did the asana too heavily. Mm-hmm. So, so see, it has a shadow side. Well, now some techniques uh, such as focusing, uh, which we talked about briefly earlier, the idea of dialoguing. If you have a pain in your body, you you ask the pain, "What are you telling me?" And you hear, you know, you become like a medium for the pain itself and give voice to the pain, so you can have a conversation. You may learn something, but that that you don't find anything like that in yoga, do you? I would say, yes, that dialogue is going on for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, Before, so the process towards samadhi, which is the absorption, um, I mean, you don't want the mind to be overactive, but you do want to listen. Mm -hmm. That sense of intuition, um, you're always working towards uh, what Patanjali terms prajna, which is this non-dual instrument of perception. So that idea of perception in listening is really crucial. Again, you don't want to have this overactive mind. You can't take that kind of dialogue out of its context, in other words. So that perceiving, that listening, and, and to me, that's what you're pointing to. It's a subtle dialogue. Now, you, you just define samadhi as absorption. What, what does that mean? Um, so, again, I use this gimmick a lot. So, if we think of pure consciousness as either a still lake or as the ocean, when these vasanas, these habit patterns, and these, or, or the samskaras, the imprints in the mind, they, they're, or the vrittis, they're over here moving. This is the modifications of the mind over here moving. Vritti um, is another term for that? So vritti, so yo, um, Patanjali's second sutra is yoga's chitavritti naroda, which is basically the stilling of the modifications of the mind stuff. So the vrittis stand for the, the moving of the mind, all the fluctuations, mm-hmm. subtle or gross. Mm-hmm. So, uh, the process um, towards samadhi and reabsorption is stealing all those fluctuations. So if you think of a vritti as like a big wave on the ocean, you're, you're stealing it to go back into the source. So it, which could be thought of as agitation in the body. Uh, uh, right. That's exactly right. They go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So you're looking to calm that agitation. Mm-hmm. All Any kind of anxiety, dis-ease, distress... Mm-hmm. That That is what you're looking to calm in order to take a comfortable seat in the body. And that's what the asana points to, is this ability to take a comfortable seat. And you talked about absorption as being a, a return to the source. Yes. So it's absorbing back into pure consciousness. Mm-hmm. So again, a lot of times when the mind fluctuates and it moves and it goes down these grooves and these habit patterns and it creates concepts and stories it gets removed from its source. Mm -hmm. And so those binds, uh, when we are able to become aware of them and releasing those binds, is moving that consciousness back into Mm -hmm. that purity. Mm -hmm. Now, in our previous interview on the feminine in-depth psychology and yoga philosophy, sort of towards the end of that interview, we introduced the concept of Shakti. Yes. Which is a a, a female goddess, but also considered an energy that moves through the body and occasionally gets stuck. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And it's going to, so it's, it's always, Shakti is forever dancing and, 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 and moving. I mean, um, this is the field of movement, if you will. 
so Patanjali uses the dualistic metaphysics of Purusha and Prakriti. Purusha, pure consciousness, absolute, um, and the, uh, the stillness is what brings us, I'm going to say, back into alignment with that. Now, Prakriti at her core is absolute as well, but she has the capacity to modify and move. And ultimately, she's really forever moving. That, that core, again, it's absolute, and it meets Purusha there. That's the dualistic metaphysics that he uses. Um, but she's forever moving. So is she moving in a way that's free and unbound, or is she moving in a way that gets bound? Now, perhaps you could say from one point of view, well, wouldn't you consider all material bound? That, that could mm-hmm. be an inquiry. That, mm-hmm. f- that really, uh, coming into any kind of material reality is binding it. Um, but to me, what Patanjali is pointing to is those psychological binds. Mm-hmm. He's pointing to those. So I, I believe that his psychology ends open-ended. He doesn't tell us what happens after Kaivalya, after that resting upon oneself. And that term Shakti totally opens the door for Tantra. So that, that dance and, and being able to be in body on earth is very viable. Now, you use the term Prakriti in a feminine sense and Shakti. Are, are, is Shakti the same as Prakriti? I would say, is Shakti, is Shakti the same as Prakriti? Um, I would say for sure, Shakti's energy uh, infiltrates Prakriti. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Shakti is is one of the possible manifestations of Prakriti. Uh, or, or I guess you would say it's it's, it's a term used to denote. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Yeah. At the end of the day, these are words. Right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> We're only pointing towards something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Shakti is is definitely pointing towards, to me, that energetic element, for Mm -hmm. sure. Well, one of the concepts that seems to be um, embedded in yoga philosophy that you don't really have in Western science or Western psychology so much is is the notion of layers, subtle subtle layers of the body, like the chakras, the nadis, the the prana. Uh, All of these things are descriptions of a of a I will call it a subtle anatomy, a spiritual anatomy separate from our normal physical anatomy. Well, again, let's be soft on the way we turn separate. You can differentiate them yeah. and you can discern them, mm-hmm. but ultimately there wouldn't be any ultimate separation. But one would discern these subtle layers in the process of realization, in the process of embodiment. We go from gross to more subtle, more subtle, more subtle. So it becomes less differentiated all the way along. I, I meant separate differently. I meant separate in the sense that it's not discussed in the, in the West. Right. At least it, it is these days, but it wasn't originally. Right. No, it definitely wasn't originally. And again, you know, Jung was one of the pioneers of, of bringing those Eastern texts. Um, and he certainly taught, uh, had lectures on, on Kundalini and on chakras. Um, but his psychology in and of itself, um, you know, speaks to psyche, but doesn't speak to the subtle layers 
mm-hmm. as we, we would in the Eastern system through chakras, for sure. My, and my sense is that when we talk about chakras, uh, it, it, these were developed through the re- ancient rishis and their meditative states as they look into their body inwardly. This is what they described. As they look in, but again, also as they live it out. Mm-hmm. So they show... Uh, or indicate, point to areas where the blockages can occur, that these are key centers within the subtle body. And in our Western frame, you know, that it, it sort of all got locked into the ego. The ego is the center of consciousness. Yeah. Whereas, again, through this Eastern vision, um, you don't, you don't want to lock it into the ego to begin with, and you want to be more concerned throughout. It's a, s- a systemic look at the several areas where that energy can get blocked. Mm-hmm. I mean, in, in Eastern traditions, if you talk about the subtle body, the uh, meridians of acupuncture would be another example. These things are taken as a given. Uh, but if you go to an anatomy class uh, at any college in the United States or in Western Europe, uh, they're likely not to be discussed at all and to be dismissed as a figment of the imagination. Right. And again, that's where we're holding fast onto this idea of materialism. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're looking just at the gross elements and um, not penetrating deeper, I think it goes hand in hand with the ideas of consciousness because consciousness is an epiphenomenon. It's something that's, you know, a secondary process that yeah. comes off of brain process. Whereas in the East, it's very different. Consciousness is the foundation and it's sort of building up through these subtle systems into the gross systems, if mm-hmm. you will. So it's, it's forever showing itself through perception, whether gross or subtle. So, when we talk about embodiment, awareness of the body, that would certainly in the yoga tradition include an awareness of the subtle body. Oh, yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Actually, uh, through my lens, I would say embodiment is then an awareness of, of everything. Here, you're aware of the earth body. You're aware of your, you know, more physical gross body, if you will. You're aware of the subtle body or the emotional body, the energetic body, the mental body. To me, for me, embodiment implies all of that. Mm-hmm. That, that, that. That nothing gets excised out. Mm-hmm. And uh, where, where then is the boundary? Uh, does the body extend to infinity? Um, very good question. So, in Eastern philosophy, it's cosmic order, and therefore, our body is the body. Uh, is it William Blake who talks about uh, the universe in a grain of sand? Mm-hmm. Is that Blake? Yes. Um, that is a very uh, uh, Indian philosophic concept. So, of course, we can see a boundary here between your skin, right, and my skin. Yeah. That's a boundary of sorts. But yet, you and I are breathing in and out of the same body of air. Mm-hmm. And if we were to leave this studio, everyone here in Albuquerque is really breathing in and out that same body of air. Just take that through the United States and all across the globe. And again, we're all standing on one rotating round rock. So, in one sense, there is a boundary. In another sense, there's no boundary at all. And that universe fully and completely exists inside each and every one of us. That's 
beautiful, Leanne. I like that. And uh, it suggests to me that we're, that sense of no boundary, that is really our... Um, I think there's a term uh, American Indians use, the long body. Maybe I've never heard that term, but mm-hmm. but this idea of that, um, the cosmic order, so so uh, Patanjali speaks to the Rutabara imprint, Ruta meaning that order, that cosmic order. Mm-hmm. Um, embodiment and cosmic order, again, for me, they, they, they go hand in hand because you're embodying, uh, that body is the cosmic body. Mm-hmm. And yes, we're sitting in a piece of it, but as it's just as Blake called it, the universe mm-hmm. in the grain of sand. Ultimately, ultimately, there is no separation. So when I started this interview and uh, mentioned that I spend a lot of my time in outer space, it doesn't mean that I'm disembodied. You have to tell me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose it depends. Uh, it fluctuates from time to time. But I think, yes, I think that, uh, you know, to to have a mystical sense of connection with the cosmos uh, occurs at the same time as being fully in the body. It can. I mean, I definitely know psychics who are not embodied. I mean, they mm-hmm. are, they are, if we can say that, if, yeah. if that mystical connection could be pointed to towards psychic phenomena. Mm-hmm. I definitely know psychics who definitely haven't done the work to process their own, um, let's say, emotional wounding. And so therefore, mm-hmm. they're in a, a cosmic order, so to speak, but yet their own lived world. Yeah. Their own, and that maybe also points to that idea of the spiritual bypass. So, for me, again, in that embodiment, everything, everything comes into an alignment from mm-hmm. that place. And, and each of us are called to not play a game on ourselves that, that we know if something is misaligned or not, if there's dis-ease or not, if there's power struggles or not. Well, you know, to be human, it seems to me, is also to be a bit off balance. That uh, this goal of being perfectly serene and at peace and have the body reflect the one's inner beauty. As we get older, we, we develop wrinkles and those wrinkles are expressive of, of our character. They are who, who we are as unique persons. And there, there's a sense, I think, in which we can be both uh, a unique wounded individual and at the same time a, uh, a being of uh, cosmic awareness. I love that. But, and, and yes, so the individuality and the universality, in other words, if we want to point to a marriage there, that's the dance. Mm-hmm. And that, uh, in the rooting, if you will, into that cosmic order or the universality then allows the spontaneous presence. So it doesn't have to be perfect. It's the, um, Equanimity, if you will. I mean, mm-hmm. that's, I, I suppose, the Buddha pointing to, towards the middle path. It allows one to play on the earth from a way that is less distressed, less diseased, less disordered, um, less suffering. I mean, that's really what Patanjali and the Buddha did was they gave us paths of salvation to, to move on. So you can mm-hmm. be on the earth plane, but in a way that allows 
I want to say more play in、yeah. spontaneous presence. Yeah. My my sense is that、uh, those practices are not going to make us perfect, but they will enable us to be more fully ourselves. Absolutely, I think. Perfection is nothing but a concept. So once you start aiming towards perfection, now you're back in the conceptual realm.、Mm. You see what I mean? That's why I, I, I think Patanjali was a genius. I really do.、Yeah. And he chooses this term kaivalya to rest upon oneself.、He、doesn't say anything about perfection. Kaivalya. Kaivalya. Yep.、Mm-hmm. To rest upon oneself. Yes. I mean, it does also translate as aloneness. Right, because it's singular. It's absolute and it's singular.、Um, but I, I've also、uh, read the translation to rest upon oneself. Yes. And, yeah. And you would equate that with being embodied, fully embodied. Yes,、yeah, to let the let,、uh, if you will, cosmic force to to take its rest on the earth plane.、Mm-hmm. Because again, consciousness is all that there is. So the material. Is as conscious as the mind that was split off to find its way back into that harmony. So you rest in pure perception. And again, it, perfection, I think, is a, is a really, you know, maybe it's a Judeo-Christian concept, or, or right, because there's that, that that judgmental God in the sky. So we want to sort of act perfect to、uh, perhaps please that God. Whereas this is more of a, a balancing, an ability to hold. A balance where life loses the tendency to suffer. That doesn't mean that there won't be pain. It's just that one、uh, is able to release the mind at will, so it doesn't grasp around these concepts that would cause suffering. And to me, perfection—any idea of perfection—is going to do nothing but cause pain. It's going to keep you back out in this cycle of concept.、Mm-hmm. Well, Leanne Whitney, once again, a very stimulating discussion. I don't want to use the word enlightening, although it was, but because I think you're reaching for something even a little deeper. But I have to say, I feel more embodied after talking to you. Fantastic, and and I so enjoy being here with you, Jeff. Thank you. Thank you for being with me, Leanne, and thank you for being with us. Thank you.